0: And as each week, this 6th of 10 weeks of Marriage Matters, you need a set of notes in front of you. And if you'll take a look then at that first page in that set, which is page 37. Let me make a few announcements before we get into, though, page 37 and Lesson 6. One is that, ladies, so there'll be one clipboard starting at the back in each of the four sections. It is for... Uh, Attendance at the Lady Social, which is Friday night, December the 11th, need to know who's coming and a number that you might be bringing with you as well in order to plan. So that will make its way in your section. Don't pass it across the aisle. Pass it in front of you. Uh, If you're on the end, uh, then pass it to the row in front of you, and then those all four should wind up in the front rows up here, and it all should go well. Last week, if you were here, you know we had one clipboard trying to make its way through all four sections. And I prophesied that that wouldn't happen. And I am qualified, apparently, as a prophet because it didn't happen. It made it through three of the four, which is actually two more than I thought it would. But uh, nevertheless, it didn't make it through all four. So this time we've got four going. should work out okay. Ladies, tomorrow is the biweekly book study through the book The Wisdom of God. And that meets at two times on Mondays every other week. It meets at 10 a.m. here and 7 p.m. here. So it's the same study, so that two different times, so that if you work during the day or have other obligations, you could come to the one at night. Uh, nursery and toddler care is provided as well. Uh, I think this is the it'll be the third session. The ladies are really enjoying uh, the book and the insights in the book and the discussion. So I encourage you to avail yourself of that tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., or tomorrow night at the 7 p.m. This Wednesday, we do not have our midweek program because Thanksgiving, so we're going to let you uh, take that night off to uh, cook and prepare. No midweek this coming week, this Wednesday. And then a little bit longer range, but January the 3rd and the first four Sundays of January, there are five Sundays in January, but the 3rd, the 10th, 17th, and 24th, we have our periodic newcomers orientation. And that's a class that I lead in another part of the building for those who are new to our church and you would like to know more about it. We provide a booklet of 63 pages to you. Uh, in four weeks I go through and tell you who we are and where we've come from and what we believe and a bit about why we do things the way we, the way we do. Uh, and things that we hope, by God's grace, to be able to accomplish in the future. So it is designed to answer questions that you might have about CBC. It is for information only, so do not feel like you're going to be harassed in any way about joining our church. Uh, We don't do that, and it's completely counterproductive to do it anyway, uh, even if we had thought about it, because if you have to try to make strong-arm somebody to join your church, then if you don't want to do it, it's okay with me. (laughs) But we would love to have you and would love to give you the information to help you make a good and informed decision. That's what it's for. So mark your calendars, January 3rd through the uh, 24th. All right, let me review quickly some of the key concepts that we've looked at in Marriage Matters in its first five weeks. This is week number six. I defined marriage as helping... Each helping the other to become more like Jesus. That's what marriage is for. Each helping the other to become more like become more like Christ. And I say that because biblically, relationship is for discipleship. A good way for you to think about not only your marital relationship, but all of your relationships, is that those relationships are for the for the purpose of of discipleship, that is you growing in your relationship and you help relationship with Christ and you helping the person in the relationship to grow in their relationship with Christ if it's somebody that doesn't have a relationship with Christ then it's for the purpose of seeing them brought into one so relationship is for discipleship and as applied to marriage then it is a partnership in which each is helping the other to become more like Jesus now if you are awake and you think about that a little bit. Uh, there was a time in human history, unfortunately, rather brief, in which there was no sin. You had our first parents, Adam and Eve, living in a perfect environment, and they had a perfect relationship, an open relationship with each other and with God, and sin had not tainted either of those. And I'm saying that marriage is helping the other to become to become more like Jesus. Was that was that true? In in creation, even before sin, well, you know we're not in that state, so we don't have to spend a lot of time on it. But in my view, it is uh, because the husband and the wife in relationship uh, were designed to help each other, continue to learn about God, and then learning about God reflect Him back to Him, evidence His character qualities in their lives in uh, in in uh, increasingly brighter and. and and truer colors in their relationship with one another and with with God. I mean, even Adam and Eve, in their perfect environment, didn't know everything about God. And as a matter of fact, when we get to heaven, we sometimes think we're going to know everything about God. Do you know that's not true? There will never be a time when you fully exhausted all there is to know about God. And certainly Adam and Eve did not have that. And so they were in a learning environment. And as they learned, they were to apply and they were designed to help each other apply. Relationship is and always has been for discipleship. But it is certainly the case. Now with sin having entered the picture and our relationships, it is all the more difficult but also essential that we be intentional about helping one another become more like Christ. Because now I've got this huge obstacle in my own life and then the life of the person with whom I'm related, and that is that obstacle of sin that militates against me reflecting God back to God. And in then this process of helping one another become more like Jesus, our hearts have to be the target. So we have seen that heart change is the most important change that all of us need for our own individual well-being, but then also for the health of our relationships. So our hearts are the target. That is, the things that we value, the things that we crave, desire, and want. Those things have to be examined as to whether or not they have become idolatrous. I'll remind you of that in a moment. So our hearts are the target. The, the goal is root change or radical change. We sometimes use radical, you know, there was a day not that long ago where radical was just used to mean cool, but radical means really to get to the root. So when we talk about radical change, we're talking about root change and root change according to the Bible is heart change. So in your growth in Christ and in your growth in your relationships, your goal is not sin management. You know, that is just to manage my sin so that it doesn't have the most egregious manifestations that cause me grief and cause others around me grief. So God is, is not interested in you taking what kind of anger classes? Anger what? Anger, you know, right? Now Now, look, if you've been helped by anger management, cool. I mean, that, if that keeps you from, say, pulling a gun on me in this meeting, I'm really glad you went to anger management, all right? But, but God is primarily interested in, in heart change, radical change, that then manifests itself in our relationships and a different approach toward my disappointments and failure to meet others, of others to meet my expectations. And we, when we fail to reflect God back to Him, it's always at root some desire, even a good desire, that has become idolatrous. That has caused that reflection to be dimmed, to cause the mirror that I was made to be to be cracked and distorted in what it reflects to and about God. There's always some desire, even a good des- a desire for something good, but that has become idolatrous. The desire is, is manifest in our actions and in our, our words. So the root problem, the radical thing that needs to be changed are these are these idolatrous desires that we have. All of us have. And we bring those into our relationships. So the words I speak and the actions that I perform are really simply manifesting. They're they're simply showing the desires that I have in my heart. And so what that means is changing locations or changing jobs or, heaven forbid, changing partners is not the answer to your heart problem. Because when you change the job and the location and the partner, guess what? You take the same heart with you. So if the heart is really the issue, then get the heart focus upon radical change of of the heart. Now, I'm going to talk about how you know a desire has morphed into into an idolatrous desire in, in today's lesson a bit. But for now, just understand that that's the root issue and that's the root problem with us reflecting God back to God in our relationships. So, since what we say and what we do are simply manifestations of what we think and what's in our hearts, then the last two weeks, as we've been looking at communication, then that's simply, the words we speak are simply revealing our hearts. And your communication problem And marital communication problems are not first and primarily incompetence. They're rather idolatry. Now, when I say incompetence, what do I mean? What most of us think when we say, you know, we just don't communicate, we don't know how to communicate, we've got communication problems in our marriage. We need to learn, what do we think? We need to learn how to communicate because we're not competent to communicate properly. So we need to learn how. And what I'm telling you is that our problems in communication are not first and primarily incompetence. They are first and primarily idolatry. The reason we speak to each other the way we do is because we want the stuff we want. Now, I'm all for learning the love language of your partner. You all know what I'm talking about? There's a book several years ago called The Five Love Languages. You know, and the and the book claims that the key for marital communication is for you to unlock and find the love language of your of your spouse. And that book has been very valuable to a lot of people, and so I'd encourage you to read it and use it and implement it. I'm not so I'm not discarding that. I am saying this that that's not the first and primary issue. The first and primary issue is an analysis of my heart and what I want and why it is that I speak in the sinful ways that I do uh, when I use my tongue in a way that does not reflect God back to God. So those are some of the key concepts that we've seen to this point. Now today on page 37, we're going to look at the issue of conflict and try to make the case that conflict can actually be good. So first, the nature of conflict. Conflicts are often... Battles for what we want. And notice the word want. That's just a synonym for what we desire. And our desires, remember, are very often idolatrous. And so so conflicts are often battles for things we desire, things we want, things that have become idols of the heart. So consider the following mundane scenario. Jack sits at the table paying some bills. Michelle bursts into the room. Michelle says, Do you think it's too much to ask for a little help putting the kids to bed? Couldn't you hear the grief they were giving me? Sounded like you had everything under control. I'm just saying it'd be nice to have a little help from you once in a while. I help. What do you think I'm doing right now? I'll gladly let you pay the bills and I'll put the kids to bed next time. You never listen to me. She storms out. I am listening. You're not just, you're just not making any sense. Just how, just how profitable is all of this? God gave us the ability to communicate, and we waste it with stuff like that. But it's very, 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 very common. Now, we're going to resurrect this conversation on the next page in a bit to ask a little bit deeper, what's going on? What does Michelle really want? So conflicts, just understand that they are often battles for things we we want. And understand as well that your spouse is not the ultimate enemy. And we have three passages, two on this page and one on the next page, that that make this clear, that your spouse is not the enemy. So bear with me as I read Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and pray in the spirit on all occasions and all with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. So that's Ephesians six. And we're going to cull out of that on the next page in a moment, some things that we can apply to our relationships but the battle is not first with your spouse. It is first a spiritual battle. And then at the bottom of page 37, you have James 4, which asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes our conflict? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And then Jesus says in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you let me just stop there for a moment some of you know i kick this dog every time i read those two verses so just quickly because you've heard me do it but matthew 7 1 is the favorite verse of lots of people Because whenever they're confronted with sin, the first thing they want to say is, don't judge. Jesus said, don't judge. I got it right there. It's in red letters. Don't judge. So Jesus says here, do not judge or you too will be judged. And then the first word in verse 2 is very important. For, because. Here's why I'm telling you, don't judge the way you judge because in the same way you judge you're going to be judged. Hear this. The Bible does not condemn judging. The Bible condemns certain kinds of judging. And the kind of judging that's being condemned here is hip- hypocritical self-righteous judging. As a matter of fact, the Bible actually commands judging. John 7:24. John 7:24. Also in red letters, by the way. Judge righteous judgment. That's a quote. Jesus says judge righteously. And then 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 15. The, the spiritual man evaluates, judges all things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us to test and approve all things. I could go on and on with biblical commands that require evaluations to be made. But this is self-righteous hypocritical judgment. All right. Verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And by the way, notice that last phrase. Then you'll be able to remove the speck. So Jesus is not saying don't remove the speck. He's not saying even don't judge the speck. He's saying don't do it hypocritically while you've got a log sticking out of your head now these passages taken together teach a number of things and we have them bulleted for you on page 38 that the source of our quarrels and our conflicts is our own desires we don't get we don't get what we want we don't get what we want now on the previous page bottom of page 37, James 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that, that battle within you? And I've made the case that these desires can morph into idolatrous de- desires. So how do you how do you know that that's, that's what's happened? I'm going to answer that when we get to point number two. But for now, just understand that the source is not getting what we want, our desires. And then second bullet there, our struggles are against spiritual forces of evil. Our spouse is not our enemy, Satan and sin are now let me just talk about that for a minute because if my spouse is acting wrong or if I'm acting wrong and if it's really spiritual forces at work how am i supposed to think about that am i supposed to look at my spouse exploding for the umpteenth time in his or her anger let's say and go you're possessed I knew it, and Pastor said it. You're possessed. We don't need a marriage class; we need an exorcism here. Okay. So, so how are you to think about that? Let's. Well, it's not. It's not that you're possessed, and if and if you're a Christian, that's impossible. A Christian cannot be possessed. One. But the truth is, you and I, all of us, Christian or not, are constantly influenced by spiritual forces. And the Bible calls Satan the God of this world. And you do understand, don't you, that true Christianity, true born-again regenerate people are a vast majority in this or a vast minority in this world. You understand that? So that we are vastly outnumbered. And and so Satan and his minions have available to them the machinery of the culture of the world to spread the message that they choose to spread. And you and I swim in that ocean all the time. And so it's very easy for us to then become become accustomed to it. And if you're someone who doesn't know Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not only being influenced, you have no governor, you have no internal censor for you to know the difference. This is just the way it is. This is just the way life is. So we can find ourselves, because it's the the culture, the world is the ocean in which we swim. It's the air we breathe. We find ourselves mimicking what we hear. And that's Satan's influence through the culture. So don't think of this as this direct thing. He zaps people and they all of a sudden grow horns and all of that. No, this is... He's much more clever than that. Satan masquerades, the Bible says, as an angel of light. So this spiritual influence is done much more subtly. When we buy into the values of the world, when we imbibe in the values of the world, mimicking then what we allow ourselves to take in, what we hear and what we feed our minds upon. So how is it then... How would it follow, if what I just said is true, how would it follow that we are to combat this, these spiritual forces? You know, Paul, who wrote that, Ephesians 6, doesn't say, now go on a witch hunt. Now go looking for these demon-possessed people in your home or in your workplace. He doesn't say do any of that. What What he describes in Ephesians 6 for the spiritual warfare are pieces of armor that are pieces of truth, right? Focusing our minds not on the lies that Satan dispenses through the culture, but focusing our minds on what the Bible teaches about righteousness and the gospel and salvation. And that's why we have then bullet point number three. The weapons of our conflict are spiritual. Truth and righteousness, gospel, faith, salvation, the sword of the Spirit. Now, since quarrels come from internal desires, we, these passages teach, should begin by examining ourselves. Once we know ourselves as broken image bearers, worshipers who have gone wrong, rebels against God, we must include ourselves in all the things that have made our lives difficult. Now, when this is said here, look at yourself first. Jesus says, what about the plank before the speck? And if if I really do have all this internal stuff going on within me, and you do as well, then that requires introspection. And I would add to it that it requires real and deep introspection. And considering how my spouse might actually be responding rather than initiating. Have you thought those of you who are married, that what I'm seeing in my spouse may have an element of them responding to what they're seeing in me, rather than them being the initiator and therefore the problem. Now, First Peter chapter 3 assumes that this can be the case when it says to wives in that case, it says to wives, I'm paraphrasing, wives, don't nag your husband's. And don't nag your husbands because that can turn them away. And they can end up responding negatively or positively to what you're dishing out. And, of course, our hope is that they would respond positively and be one if they're not a believer, says Peter. And so here's the way you should present yourself. And he presents a spiritual profile of a godly wife there. And, of course, the same applies to, to we men. So have you done this kind of real and deep introspection that considers at least the possibility that what you're seeing in your spouse is them responding rather than initiating? And when I say real and deep, I don't mean what I hear all the time. I don't mean when someone meets with me, "Uh, look, I know I've got my problems. That's how deep it gets. I know I've got my problems. And then, you know, I just wanna I just wanna say, hold up. <laughs> Don't go any further. Really? I would have never known that you have problems. See, here's the thing. I already know something about you because I read a book about you. Called the Bible. It already tells me about you. It already tells me you got problems. I know you got problems. I know you're a sinner. I know that you've contributed to what's going on in your in your home. The question is, are we willing to identify how you've done that and to accept that and then respond to it appropriately? That's not real and deep introspection to simply say, now, look, I've got my faults. Or one of my favorites is, now, look, I'm not perfect. Really? Anyway. Fifth bullet. It's things like pride and fear, a desire to be right, and self-righteousness that keep us from examining ourselves first. Now you can go down that list. I don't have time to do that. But pride is obvious, an obvious detriment to that. Fear might be that if I do that and if I admit that, how will that be received by my spouse? Might they use that against me? And then the last bullet, we will be ready and willing to first take the plank out of our own eye when we accept the fact that we are sinners. Now, notice this, that it is good to have our hearts and weaknesses exposed so that we can grow and change and know that God gives grace to the humble. Now, friends, don't gloss over that quickly. We'll be ready and willing to do this hard work of examining ourselves first if we accept that we are sinners. And notice this, accept the fact that it is good to have our hearts and weaknesses exposed. For most of us, that that is the last thing on your list of good things. Would be to have my heart and my weaknesses exposed and my sin exposed. But if you have the proper end game in mind, which is that I'm in this to become more like Jesus, then not only is that a good thing, it's an absolutely essential thing. I can't correct what's wrong with me if I don't know what it is. So you'll be willing to do this if you have the right end game to become like Jesus and understand that the only way that that goal can be achieved is to have what's wrong with me made known to me. All right. So how do we examine our own hearts? Middle page 38 in conflict, we are tempted to immediately place blame on our spouses. Going back to Genesis three, remember that. So God confronts the man and the woman immediately. The first thing out of their mouth From the man is the woman. From the woman, it's the serpent. Ultimately, they're blaming God. We're tempted ever since to immediately place blame on our spouses, but the Bible teaches us to examine our own hearts and look for desires that we need to repent of because they become more important to us than loving God or our spouse. Now, that's the portion where I've told you I want to just identify briefly how it is that we can determine that a desire, even a good desire, has become an idolatrous one. And that last line there is that our desires that we need to repent of are those that have become more important to us than loving God or our spouse. Now, most of you, as you sit here, you would go, well, man, I don't know how many desires I've got like that. I mean, unless, you know, and and I don't mean to be flippant with something so, so serious, but unless you are currently engaged in some kind of gross and obvious sin against your spouse and against God, Then you may say, oh, I don't have any of that. So here's the way, though, for us to identify these idolatrous desires. And that is, you know a desire even for something good. A desire even for something good has become idolatrous. When? You're willing to sin if you don't get it. Or you're willing to sin in order to get it. So let me say it again. You know that a desire even for something good has become idolatrous. When you're willing to sin if you don't get it or you're willing to sin in order to get it. Now what might be this good thing? I mean this good thing might be help with the kids. So I need I need help with the kids. That's a legitimate desire. But if I, become, if I become angry and I lose control, that's evidence that that's become an idolatrous desire. I want it too much. And so you've heard me say in the past that idolatry is often found in wanting good things too much. Idolatry is often found in wanting good things too much. And I know that I want them too much when I'm willing to sin to get them or to sin because i haven't received them you can think about you can think about now the desires of your heart you know all i want is for my husband to fill in the blank and all of those blanks may be good things but ask yourself are you sinning in the absence of that thing in the way you react to not having it Next paragraph, if quarrels are caused by the desires within us, we should first identify those desires. The question, what do you want, is quite different from what are you fighting about. What you're fighting about is the set of circumstances that precipitated the conflict. What you want concerns the real issues that drive the conflict. The Bible challenges us to dig beneath the details of the event and uncover deeper issues of the heart. For example, in the conflict between Jack and Michelle, It's likely Michelle wanted more than just help with the kids. She feels angry because she wants something deeper that hasn't been put on the table for discussion. Perhaps she wants to be treated differently by her husband. Maybe beneath the bedtime event is a sense that her husband doesn't value time with the kids. Or maybe she feels her husband doesn't value or respect her role as a parent. She wants him to express appreciation and respect for what she does, even if he doesn't view those duties as part of his role. Or perhaps at root, she simply doesn't feel like her husband values her as a wife. It feels that he just views her as a domestic as domestic help, a nanny, a cook, a maid. It isn't so much that she wants him to put the kids to bed with her; she wants her husband to treat her like she's more than hired help. She wants him to want her, for her. Now, is all of that legitimate? If you're if you're talking to Michelle and Michelle just lays all that out, you go, yeah. <laughs> you, you do what everybody does. Now, isn't this what everybody does? And this is why nobody helps each other. And I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. This is what we do. When we're talking to each other, we agree with what you said. When I'm talking to you, I agree with you. Yeah, that's right. Yep, of course. Yeah, he should appreciate you. Absolutely, you deserve. Are you kidding me? I can't believe he doesn't see what a gem you are. I, You know? And you're just sitting, you're just nodding your head. And guys, you see this everywhere. Just watch any two people talking. Believe it or not, I watched this stuff just this week. Um, outside of a restaurant, you know, two older guys who just, you know, hang there all the time. And they're just standing out there and they're just nodding. And the one guy's talking and the other guy's nodding and the other guy's nodding. And yeah, you're right. And why can't everybody agree with us? Why don't they just, you know, we're right. But see, if we're always right, how do we ever correct what's wrong? And it takes a real friend to love you enough to say, "Uh uh-uh, hold up. And almost nobody's willing to do that. And part of the reason we're not willing to do that, hear this, is because we need each other more than we love each other. And until we begin to love each other more than we need each other, we won't be willing to step out and risk it to say, hey, wait a minute, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what you're doing here. Let's talk about what the Bible says about your role in this thing. And here's one other value that would have. (laughs) I mean, it would mean more people are helping more people. It would also mean that I get a few less arrows shot at me for doing it. Because if you're the only, like, you know, one of the few people doing it, then people go, where did you, what's up with you? Look, your job is to nod your head and agree. That's what people do. So when I tell you all the problems I'm having, you're supposed to go, yeah, oh, yeah, I hear a man. I can't believe, I'll pray about that. And instead, you turn around and go, well, hey, let's talk about you. What's this got to do with me? I came here to talk about that idiot spouse I have. So, top of page 39. If Michelle had the honesty to admit what she wants, she could speak with Jack differently. I just realized that when I was angry at you for not helping with me, Helping me put the kids to bed. It was really about something else we need to talk about. First, I want to tell you, I'm sorry I snapped at you in my anger. I was wrong, and I ask you to forgive me. If both spouses take this biblical approach to conflict, that they can see godly conflict differently. That it exists to create winners and to defeat sin. The purpose is not to destroy the weaker, but... Make him or her stronger and more godly. We can face godly conflict as a team, not as opponent, as opponents. And you should have the word not in there. That it exists not to create winners, but rather to defeat uh, uh, sin. It's not to just you win the argument, but rather it is for us to defeat sin. So what's a biblical approach to conflict? Conflict can be used for good if seen properly. Left to our own devices, though, we handle conflict in one of three ways. We appease, we ignore, or we seek to win. When we appease, we look for a way to satisfy the other so there's no reason for conflict. So, okay, I'll just give in, give what you want so that there's no conflict. I hate conflict. I don't like conflict. I run from conflict. Some of you have said that. Some of you live that way. And and I'm telling you, I am telling you, look, I get that. Who wants conflict? If you want conflict you got a problem. okay? If you want it, who wants it? But I also would tell you, if you're unwilling to face conflict, then you don't love the people that God has put in your life as you ought. Because that conflict is for the purpose of you changing and them changing. But left to our own devices, one of the things we will do is appease, look for a way to satisfy so that there's no reason. When we ignore, we pretend the problem doesn't exist. When we win, problems are settled because we defeat the other party through persuasion and intimidation. I can out-argue the person. I can overwhelm them. All three of these are flawed and easily corrupted by the deceitful desires and fears of our heart. The question is, what does love look like in a conflict? And remember what love is. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. So is is it in the best interest of the other party for me to appease? Is it in the best interest of the other party for me to ignore? It is the best interest of the other party for me to win and overwhelm them. The following passages require something similar to appeasing, ignoring, and winning. But instead, these things are yielding, waiting, and confronting. Now, and I just want you to notice this. Before we look at these passages, you've got these three things that people typically do. Appease, ignore, win. And we're going to look at passages that... Command us to yield and wait and confront. And if you think about those words, if you think about appeasing and yielding, those sound the same. If you think about ignoring and waiting, those sound the same. And if you think about confronting and winning, they sound the same too. So, what's the difference between them? If a false way to handle conflict is to appease, ignore, and win, then how is yielding and waiting and confronting better? Here's how. It's that last line in that second paragraph. That yielding and waiting and confronting are motivated not by what's best for me, but by love for God and our spouse. What's in the best interest of the other person? See, we appease and ignore and win because that's best for us, because our desires are for what we want and what we get. But when we're willing to do something similar, but actually radically different, because it's motivated by a different core desire, namely for the best interest of the other. We yield or wait or confront. So Proverbs 17. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. That's a willingness, that's a willingness to yield. Proverbs 20, it's one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. That could be yielding or just waiting. You may have to confront it later, but you'll wait. And why would you wait? We'll give some reasons on the next page. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Let me just stop there. Do you all see that? Failure to rebuke someone can be cause for you to share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That approach is to lovingly confront. Matthew 18, Jesus. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that, quote, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's a quote from the book of Deuteronomy in the first part of your Bible. But again, that's lovingly confronting. Top of page 40. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That would be yielding or waiting. And then James 3. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Again, yielding and waiting. The Bible gives us more than one strategy because different people and situations require different approaches. And how do you know which one to use? Since our foundation is God's love, ask yourself which approach would most benefit your spouse. Answering that question requires more than a technical understanding of one approach or another. It requires you know yourself and you know your spouse. So in what circumstances should I yield weight or lovingly confront? A large part of answering that with wisdom is knowing knowing myself and knowing my spouse. Which brings us then to Addressing that a little bit further in the next point. Love is more than right or wrong. Working through conflict in a godly way requires that you grow in wisdom and you act in love. Growing in wisdom, if you care to jot down next to wisdom, wisdom is applying what you know. And then acting in love is performing, behaving in a way that's in the best interest of another. So grow in wisdom, grow in applying what you know and behaving in ways that are in the best interest of your spouse. You need the wisdom, that is the ability to apply what you know, to size up your own heart, your spouse's heart, and the situation as best you can in order to act in faith and love. Now here, because of time, we got 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. I'm going to summarize that. Many of you are familiar with what it what it says. But the event that that passage is addressing is this. That in the church to whom this letter of 1 Corinthians was written, one of the many problems that they needed instruction on was this. That in the pagan temple in the city of Corinth, there were sacrifices made to the pagan gods and goddesses. And after those animal sacrifices were dead, you could sometimes get a good deal on the meat in the market at the temple. So people were accustomed to doing that, but now they've come to Christ. Should I be buying this meat? It's a good deal, and by the way, it is really tasty. But it's been sacrificed to an idol. Is it okay? Now as you read through those verses, the answer is that It's fine, all things being equal. That the idol is nothing, says Paul, and the meat is just meat. So eat it and give thanks. All things being equal, it's all good. But there's an X factor that you have to take into consideration, and that is you may know that and I may know that. I may know it's just meat. I may just know that the idol is nothing, but not everybody knows that. And because not everybody knows that, do not use the freedom that you have to do this as a means to cause someone else to stumble. That is, somebody who violates their conscience because they think this is wrong, but they see you doing it. And so they're emboldened to do it and they sin because they violated their conscience. So the major principle for you in this is what's in the best interest of the other party. And what's that defining? What's in the best interest of someone else? That's defining love. And this passage is about love and loving your neighbor with a situation like that. So bottom of page 40, the Corinthian church was beset with all kinds of problems, disputes over which leaders to follow, sexual immorality, divorce, even how to maintain order during services. 1 Corinthians is full of practical advice, but wisely it does more than just give instructions on what to do. It gives its readers a principle to guide them in not only solving their current problems, but the many problems that undoubtedly will arise in the future. And that principle is always seeking, top of page 41, to do what is in the best interest of others. And that's applied to this very real problem. Now look at the bullet points there. Here's what that means for us. We can be right in principle. But we can be so wrong in the way we act on that principle that we're harming others and not acting in love. Love always helps others to grow by building them up. Secondly, we should never use our rights in a way that harms others. And then third, we should take different approaches to conflict depending on what would be loving, what would build up our spouses. So. Consider this. Real peace is more than just the absence of conflict. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit that's cultivated only by the eradication of sin and that usually through conflict. We must then take seriously the Bible's call to do battle against sin where we find it, in our own hearts and in our relationships. This means identifying the real enemy, not our spouse, our sin. When spouses learn the difference between attacking each other and attacking sin, conflict takes on a whole new meaning. Learning to work through conflict in a godly, constructive way will always be more than a prescribed set of steps. It requires that you grow in wisdom and act in love. You need the wisdom to size up your heart, your spouses, and the situation so that you can act in faith and love. Now, again, I want to promote the homework. If you haven't been doing the homework, then you're not getting all that you can and should out of our time together. So let me encourage you to do the homework. Lord willing, we'll see you next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessing of this day. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be here. We thank you for giving us the desire to be here, to learn of you and then to apply what you tell us to do. And Lord, we want to apply these things Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday. And so now we are going to go, we're going to depart and we are going to enter into the relationships in which you have called us to display you back to you and to others Lord, because of our our sin, there is a blockage, that there's a distortion that keeps that from happening. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to move upon our hearts so that we are willing to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the greater cause of your glory and the good of those that you've called into our circle of relationship. And we ask you as a result of that, beginning this week, that we practice this kind of behavior that that puts first the needs of others and your pleasure. And then, Lord, as we do that, as we develop that discipline, that selfless discipline in our relationships, may we grow in discipleship. May we grow in reflecting you back to you. We ask you to keep us safe and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.